0: Hey, friends. I'm glad you joined me. I uh, need to do some more reporting on Florida. If you didn't see last week, I put out a Florida uh, episode. I, I sometimes report just on the the whole annual conference, and I've reported on six or seven conferences that way. Uh, Florida's where the NCLL, first NCLL lawsuit uh, started with 106 churches, and I talked about that and proceedings. And then immediately the next week, uh, we have the judge dismissing the court case there. And so what are the implications of that? I wanted to spend just a few minutes going through some of the first materials on that and see what conclusions couldn't be drawn. Is this just a clear defeat for disaffiliating churches, or is this something laying the groundwork for potentially something helpful for disaffiliating churches? Um, so we'll, we'll look at uh, four different resources that are going to be less intense than, than most stuff that I do, but I just thought let, let's just cover this. I know there are a lot of people who want to know the details of this. So the the, the funny, ironic, not funny part of this is that Jay Therrell put out a, an article on the day that the decision was made. Um, it was in an article titled An Update on Lawsuits Across the USA, and so he put that out with respect to um, a number of different conferences. We uh, uh, had the Western North Carolina. We're going to talk about that a little bit. There were 36 churches, I think, that filed together. And their case was dismissed, but the NCLL. Well, uh, yeah, I might as well talk about it now. The NCLL put out a document saying it looks like that judge there was compromised. He had close connections to United Methodist leadership, and um, the, they're they're going to be relitigating this Florida annual conference. So, in case you're not clear what the things were at stake, why it was that they were filing suit, and I did not do a good job reporting on this because it has to do with insurance, and I am not an insurance person. So let's let's look at uh, Therrell's language here. Approximately 106 churches filed a lawsuit against the conference in last summer of 2022. Presently, about 70 remain in the suit. I talked in my report about why some dropped out, so if you want to know those details, watch my report. TJ put a link to that. Among the requirements of the Florida disaffiliation process, there are unique provisions related to property and casualty insurance. The Florida conference mandates that all of its churches purchase property and casualty insurance from the conference. Disaffiliating congregations are required to sign away 26 years of coverage for which they have paid premiums. Should a claim arise in the future, it's important to note, the statute of limitations for many sexual abuse claims can be well over 20 years. The church, even though it paid for insurance, will have no benefit of it and will be fully exposed. Moreover, the disaffiliating churches are required to purchase a tail policy covering the Florida Conference for any claims in the first three years after the church, the church disaffiliates. Originally, the conference wanted a tail policy covering them for 26 years, but no insurance carrier was willing to write such a policy add up the amount of premiums for insurance a church has paid over 26 years, and it's easily in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. For many, it's in the millions. The Florida conference filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit, other motions related to discovery and sanctions. The motions were argued on February 21st after a very lengthy oral argument. The judge promised to rule quickly. As of today, it has been eight weeks and no ruling has been issued. Well, it was that day, the 18th, that uh, the Florida conference released uh, this, this article, Court Dismisses Disaffiliation Lawsuit Against the Florida Conference. The same date, April 18th. And this is, this is a pretty brief um, article, so I think it's helpful to walk through this and see what it tells us. One of the questions I had whenever I was reporting on Florida is their Episcopal leadership. What is Bishop Berlin like? Um, so here's, here's what he and his conference issued. The court today issued an important ruling that supports the conference and that reaffirms the constitutional principle that secular courts do not have a role in settling matters of church doctrine. And, of course, the NCLL and the 106 churches said this is not a matter of doctrine. This is a matter of legal principles. It's it's not a doctrinal issue. Uh, The Eighth Judicial Circuit Court in Stark granted the conference's motion to dismiss a lawsuit that had been filed... By over 60 UM churches that wanted to disaffiliate from the conference. Some of the churches that wish to disaffiliate from the conference are attempting to do it through processes other than one that was established for this in the Book of Discipline, the UMC governing document. The churches seeking to depart oppose being more inclusive towards LGBTQ members. Greg hearing, so that this is sloppy. I, this is not necessarily true for all churches, and I can't speak to those 106 churches that filed. Not all churches that want to leave have a the same stance on LGBTQ stuff. Generally speaking, that's true, but they don't hang their hat on that. The vast majority hang their hat on the ungovernability of the denomination. Um, and so uh, repeated uh, not hearing that just gets irritating over time. Um, Greg Hearing, attorney for the conference, argued that the First Amendment to the Constitution strictly prohibits Secular courts from stepping into doctrinal issues that are within church governance. We've already talked about the doctrinal thing. Judge George Wright stated in the court's ruling, Under the mandatory deference approach in Florida, coupled with the local action rule, this court does not have jurisdiction to adjudicate the claims raised in the plaintiff's amended complaint. Bishop Tom Berlin responded to the news, We applaud the court's ruling today. This clarifies that if a church wants to leave the conference, it must follow the rules established by the denomination. So immediately my mind goes to that article written by Chris Ritter, where he compares the current disaffiliation situation to us all being trapped in a, a Nickelback concert hall that we don't want to be in, and the doors are just slowly closing, and they're just letting a few of us out, um, after which everybody is, is trapped. Uh, the, the ones... Guarding the door are the ones that own the room and want everybody to stay in it. Um, so the, the one saying is the foxes are running the hen house. I'm not saying that's the situation. I'm saying that's how it obviously looks and feels to those who want out uh, when the bishop is saying, uh, we get to decide if and how you leave. Uh, we've always supported a process that allows for a gracious exit and which ensures the departing churches meet their financial, legal, and moral obligations to not harm the conference or the other member churches during their departure. So those two things are kind of opposed. We believe in a gracious exit, but we reserve the right to make these guys pay out the notice. That's That would be an uncharitable way of—well, I don't think it's uncharitable. I think that's practical. That's, that's what it's resulting in. So, This ruling follows a similar ruling in North Carolina. In that case, North Carolina Superior Court dismissed a complaint filed by 36 congregations after agreeing with the motion by the Western North Carolina Conference— that the lawsuit violated the separation of church and state. So we've already talked about that. What what um, the bishop is alleging here is that um, state judicial bodies are recognizing that this is a clear First Amendment issue, and I don't think that's actually what's being reflected in these judges—well, in the Florida ruling, and then the NCLL, I think, has a good—makes uh, a good case that the judge in North Carolina was compromised. So We'll see if it's really that open and shut of case. a case. The disaffiliation pro, uh, process called for by the discipline requires departing churches to make good on their obligations to the pension fund for clergy and to maintain certain types of liability insurance, among other common financial commitments, before being granted the church property held in trust by the conference. So I think that's kind of a tacit. What we've asked for in the insurance thing is reasonable even though hardly any other conferences have required that. Um, Last year, the Judicial Council of the UMC uh, ruled that churches wishing to disaffiliate from the conference must follow paragraph 2553. Today's ruling from the court uh, reaffirms the primacy in deciding matters of doctrine. Bishop Berlin concluded, Amid this fractious debate, we remain prayerful and respectful for the process and thankful for the legal team that so ably represented the conference. While we're so sorry to see any member church depart, we also note that more than 40 churches have withdrawn as plaintiffs from the litigation since it was originally... You see how he contradistinguishes, you know, we hate to see anybody leave, but these 40 did drop out of litigation. But the thing is, those 40, they still want to leave. They just decided that it, the, the deck was stacked against him to be in that litigation. So uh, I think that was a false dichotomy. Uh, they have decided instead to pursue the more collaborative process. Oh, I spoke too soon. Okay, so yeah, he does acknowledge they are disaffiliating um, using 2553. Now, whether or not that's because they think it's a reasonable provision the way that the conference has authored it, that is another thing. So I, I think, you know, I haven't spoken with all 40 of them. I would assume that many of them still think it's unreasonable, but they just think they have no other options. So that that's not the same thing. This this article I have pulled up now is from UM News, and Heather Hahn wrote this up, and um, a lot of it is language, the first part, language directly from the document we just read. But she does some good legal analysis in the end. I think it's good. I'm not a, an expert. I'm not... Uh, This is so over my head, it's it's been hard for me to understand, but I really appreciated the work she put in on the second half here explaining some of the the juridical realities. So she was talking about Judge Wright. He noted that states are free to use different methods to adjudicate intra-church property disputes so long as those methods don't violate the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. Most states apply the neutral principles approach meaning they seek to resolve disputes on a case-by-case basis using the same property rules that apply in the secular world. However, because of Florida's Supreme Court precedent, the state is among the minority of states that use what is called the deference method. So it's not the, deference, or it's not the neutral principles approach, it's the deference method. What that means is that the states, courts, show deference to the decision made by the highest church body involved in the matter. In this case, the property decisions made by the annual conference. So the the precedent set in Florida is that they defer to the ecclesiastical authority, um, in which case this is the Florida Annual Conference. The court finds, this is a quote, that the plaintiffs have raised a good faith attempt to change the existing law from mandatory deference to a neutral principles approach, Wright wrote. But that May only be accomplished on appeal. That's what uh, the author of this piece said, and we're going to turn our final piece is going to be something written by the WCA to that effect. So yeah, let's go ahead. You know, she gives some good some history here and some stuff that most of us should know by now. But I really appreciated the neutral principles uh, thing versus the the deference thing. Um, So here's here's the thing that WCA put out on the 18th. What is today? They put it out on the 18th that, that just adds a little more texture to this. Late in the afternoon of Tuesday, April 18th, 2023, the Honorable Judge George M. Wright issued a long-awaited ruling in the Florida lawsuit involving more than 70 churches against the Florida Annual Conference and its leaders. On February 21st, 2023, the plaintiff churches and the conference argued a motion to dismiss varying motion, various motions related to discovery and a motion by the Florida Conference seeking sanctions against the churches and their attorneys. Judge Wright ordered the dismissal of the lawsuit in its entirety, but at the end of the ruling he wrote, quote, and I don't know what happened to the quotation marks here. This bothers me. The court cannot say that the plaintiff's complaint demonstrates an absolute lack of a justiciable issue. I think that's the word, justiciable. To the contrary, this type of case is being litigated throughout the country in states that follow the Neutral Principles' approach to resolving church property disputes. But considering the recent clarification from the Supreme Court on matters of discrimination and unequal treatment based on religious status, along with the abrogation of Lemon versus Kurtzman, I'm not going to pretend to know what that is, it seems to the court that merely deferring to the UMC on all matters and denying the plaintiffs access to the courts to litigate neutral property and trust matters does not meet the strictest scrutiny. Nevertheless, the court is bound to follow the law as established by the higher courts in the state of Florida. Judge Wright, see, okay, that's the end of the quote. Judge Wright seems to be indicating that if the case is appealed through the Florida appellate system, that there is, I think it's pronounced appellate system, that there is a possible chance of the current case law in Florida being overturned and Florida coming into line with the current trend of U.S. Supreme Court rulings. The case seems ripe for an appeal. Judge Wright also denied the Florida conference's request for sanctions against the plaintiff churches and their attorneys saying the court finds that the plaintiffs have raised a good faith attempt to change the existing law from mandatory deference to a neutral principles approach. Therefore, the defendant's motion for sanctions is denied. The churches will be deciding best how to move forward, and they've asked for prayers. So, if you've been watching me talk about this stuff, you know that I'm personally conflicted about this stuff. I, I'm kind of a biblical literalist, and um, I, I, I think generally it's better to be harmed by unjust forces than to litigate in the public sphere against other people who claim the name of Christ. I definitely acknowledge that that is not as firm a position as as um, some of my other positions, and um, you know, especially whenever conferences are not bearing. The marks of the mercy and grace of Christ Jesus. Then, I'm I'm very sympathetic to people who feel put in a corner to litigate. Um, in the case of Florida, you know, part of me wants to say, you know, Bishop Berlin seems reasonable. Uh, if you watched my report on him, he, I, I, he seems to be acting in good faith. I, I can't. I don't have any accusations against him or. Uh, his, his cabinet, it does still seem like his conference is erecting barriers that are too high for a lot of churches that would like to exit to do so successfully, and I do think it's ethically problematic and, and nasty to uh, withhold one's freedom based on whether or not they can pay for it. I think that just goes against basic American ethics, and you know, debtors' prisons are un-American, and, and uh, <laughs> you could hyperbolically compare uh, this to that. Um, although I can understand why the institution would not want to see it that way, um, I don't know. TJ, as you're looking at all this, thinking, do you have any thoughts or opinions on this, or is it just kind of whatever? I have no thoughts or opinions on this at all, really. I mean, I haven't I haven't thought about it enough to to articulate something that's it's it is what it is. Basically, is all is how I think about it. Like, so yeah, I think some conservatives would catastrophize and say, "Man." we just, we, we, we're we we're in trouble. We just can't make it out. But if you look at the WCA's spin on this, and it seems legit, it, it seems like the judge is making real, uh, room for an appeal, which could then change the state standard. And then if a neutral principles approach is utilized, then that could be to the detriment of conferences down the line. But litigation takes time. So we're looking at these decisions being made a year, two years, three years down the line. And that's the thing that we have said is if conferences make it too hard to get out, you can just guarantee that there's going to be a lot of litigation. So. Yeah, and at that point, if it drags out so long, is it is it worth it? Or is it like like how much money are they going to end up spending on that, the, the church? And what kind of retaliation like can the uh, uh, conference. annual conference do? Like, Are they going to take the pastor out? Are they going to seize the assets? Um, I mean, I don't know if they can do that while they're in the middle of litigation. I don't see why they wouldn't be able to. Um, so, Yeah, But and I'm trying to remember. North Georgia, I think the name of the church was Mount Bethel, and they ended up litigating with the conference a couple of years ago when Su- Sue Halpert Johnson was there. And I don't remember if they filed suit before uh, Bishop... Halpert Johnson and her cabinet declared exigent circumstances, but we did just cover the Fifth Avenue Methodist Church in North Carolina, and uh, they hadn't filed suit when the cabinet declared exigent circumstances. Yes. So. Yeah, yeah, But that was only last month they did that. Correct. I think. But in Jonesboro, Arkansas, they did file, and I think, I think that the conference did. Uh, Try and seize their assets, but the conference, but the the court did not let them, and that had to do with their bank as well. The bank, yeah, I think you right funds. about that. Yeah. So this this is different state to state based on whether or not they defer to ecclesiastical authority or have the neutral principles approach. But I, I so can't chances speak. are they may not have to worry about their assets being seized. Seized, but um, there's no reason the pastor can't be replaced. So while the the litigation might go still continue. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's no telling what's going to happen. So in Jonesboro, Arkansas, hey, Arkansas people, um, they did replace the pastor. But John Miles, the pastor that's been replaced and removed and defrocked by the conference, he's still in place and leading on site. And then the new pastor they've sent is leading worship at another location for the Stay UMC folks. Oh, okay. So, yeah, they, they can do that. So you essentially got a church split at that point, like... Unless the conference wins the litigation, in which case they move in with the police and seize all the assets and kick yeah. everybody out, which would just be crazy. But I think I think that's what the Arkansas conference is. No, what what I think they're trying to do is just have that threat and then try and get them to settle. Um, but then what the arrangement of that settlement would be, I, I have no idea. So anyway, we're we're talking out of our depth. A good deal. <laughs> But um, I'm pretty sure everything we've said is accurate. But it's just it's hard to know if this really is the coup de grace that the Florida Conference is making it sound as, and just kind of going, well, you're trapped with us, but we'll be pretty good to you. Or if it's um, um, there's there's more wiggle room than that. So of course the NCLL, who's the nonprofit law firm that filed on behalf of those 106 churches that ended up being a little more than 70, they are currently figuring out with those Florida churches what they want to do and if they want to press this uh any further and to to right now the filming of this i'm not aware of any decisions having been made but it looks like in North Carolina they're not taking no for an answer they are um, filing an appeal so uh, they're down but not out all right well that concludes our legal analysis uh but uh we're not lawyers so if you are representing a local church and you want to explore things call a lawyer. Um, NCLL, Dan Dalton, there are probably other people doing it, um, but uh, I'm not a legal expert. Um, Pray for the churches in Florida, and Tom Berlin and the Florida Annual Conference. They're getting together this Saturday for a special called conference. They, um, oh heck, it was in this article where it talked about, I think there are 17 churches that have been able Okay. So far, 2,095 congregations, including 17 congregations in the Florida Conference, have cleared the necessary hurdles under paragraph 2553 to withdraw. We'll see how many more there are at this next conference. I don't think it talks about it here. Well, they have a special session on the 22nd where it plans to vote on the disaffiliation of 55 congregations. Okay. So be in prayer for those 50. you know what? Let's just end with a prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for the ways in which you're active in uh, Methodism, and we mourn the conflict that we have, but we pray that you would glorify yourself in the midst of us, that you would um, see fit to, uh, to work your will upon these 55 congregations, upon the uh, annual conference in Florida, upon our own annual conference here that's meeting on the same day for the same purpose, and upon the United Methodist Church. We repent of our rebellion against your spirit, and we ask that you would correct us, that you would chasten us, even as you love us. We remember that you chasten the ones that you love. So uh, help us, Father, to uh, receive the painful times so that we can also receive uh, eternal heavenly bless bliss. Uh, Father, we thank you for who you are, and we ask that you bless the United Methodist Church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. All right, friends, take care. See ya.